Thank you, Simon. Hi, everyone. Uh, nice to be with you as we think about Genesis 3. Uh, if you uh, are new or visiting today, so we're in our, we are in our third week uh, of Genesis at the moment. We've had two weeks thinking about the book of Genesis so far. Uh, and, and those who have been with us will know that uh, we've seen so far that Genesis is about our deep questions about the world, the world that God made, uh, the world that is carefully crafted by him. Uh, we've seen beautiful things like how amazing his creation is. We've talked about uh, the why questions, questions like why he put us here uh, to enjoy, to work in his beautiful world. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're heading in a, uh, a different direction. Uh, we've seen now how the world was meant to be, but now we're going to move to Genesis 3 and 4. We're going to think about the world as it actually is. I was talking to someone this morning and they were saying, I've loved, I've loved looking into Genesis so far, but I said to them, well, uh, we're only just getting to the bad news. You might uh, find that you don't enjoy it quite as much after this. If you know much about the Bible, you know this is where things change. Brokenness and sin enters the world. Just the topic you want to be looking at for a long weekend, isn't it? Nice, happy sin and brokenness. Uh, but you know, it might not be a happy topic, but uh, what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, I think actually is about as important as it gets. Uh, I was talking to someone in our congregation a few days ago and talking about how, um, you know, as you get a bit older, you get more and more doctor's appointments, um, more and more medical tests and more and more waiting for test results, uh, which is hard. I had some medical tests myself recently. I reckon it had probably been two or three years since I've even been to a doctor. So I, I, and I had some minor symptoms. So I went in, got a checkup, uh, got some tests. Uh, but when you go to the doctor, doctor to get your test results, it's not actually a particularly nice feeling, isn't it? It's not particularly exciting uh, to go in and find out that something might be wrong with you. But uh, you, do, you do go in and you do go in and listen carefully because you know that what you're about to hear is really important. You go in and you listen carefully. Uh, the other thing, I went in and got my test results. The last thing you want is for your doctor to fluff around and uh, do small talk for five minutes, right? My doctor didn't do that at all. I went in, uh, sat down, and within two seconds, he said, good to see you, Matt. Uh, here's, your, here's your results. A couple of things came up here. Here's what they are. Uh, thankfully for me, it wasn't anything particularly serious at all. It was uh, just a couple of things he wanted to look in further, into further, and, and even then, not, not serious things. Uh, so good for me. But uh, over the next couple of weeks in Genesis, we're going to hear the Bible's diagnosis of what's wrong with the world. It might not be news that we're excited about hearing, uh, but it is news we need to hear. News we need to hear if we want to be people who want to deal with reality and the world as it actually is. I guess in some ways it's actually a relief, isn't it? Uh, even to get the bad news, it, it might be bad news, but in some ways it's, it's almost better to know what's wrong, right? I haven't experienced this, but I'm sure it's frustrating. I've heard people talk about this. Uh, they go to the doctor again and again and again and say, I have these symptoms. Uh, and then again and again, the doctor says, well, I just, I, I can't find anything wrong with you. It's good to know that there is something wrong. You aren't just imagining it. This is how, uh, this isn't how it's meant to be. Well, our world has plenty of symptoms, plenty of brokenness all around us. That's true, isn't it? What then is our diagnosis? Well, don't, let me not fluff around. Let me give it to you straight. The Bible says that the world is broken and that we can't fix it. The world is broken and that we can't fix it. 
we'll talk especially about that idea of trying to fix things next week. But today, uh, I want us to think mostly about how the world broke, why the world is broken. Uh, because the world is broken because of what the Bible calls sin. Uh, so let me give you an outline of uh, how we're going to talk about that today. Uh, we're going to talk about sin's lies. We're going to talk about sin's shame and sin's effects. And just so you know, th- those three really are the, the main points. We'll, we'll spend most of our time on those three. And then there's just a couple of things I wanted to do at the end as well. Um, I think this passage brings up lots of big questions for us. And I thought it'd be worth uh, just thinking about those, even though we probably won't be able to uh, give full or perfect answers. But uh, there's some big questions to think about for a minute. And uh, finally, I do want to just come back because I think there are some hints of hope in Genesis 3 as well. But uh, mostly we're going to talk about sin's lies, sin's shame, and sin's effects. Uh, so the first, first one, sin's lies. Uh, let's uh, get into our passage, Genesis 3. The world is broken because of sin. This is our diagnosis. This is the story of how sin came in, uh, the story of what went wrong with the world. And it starts like this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Uh, we've just come out of this beautiful picture of Genesis 2, and suddenly here's this snake, this serpent. He's a crafty snake, which kind of means, he, means he's sneaky and devious. Uh, but it's, it's strange, right? What's the deal with this random snake? I mean, uh, I don't know if back in the Garden of Eden there was this thing where animals can talk, or if this was abnormal that a snake could just come along and have a conversation with the woman. I don't know, it's all very random. Uh, one thing we do know from later in the Bible, particularly Revelation 12.9, I think makes this clear, that the snake is, in some way, this, this snake is Satan himself, the devil. So we don't know it in Genesis yet, it doesn't mention that here, but we do know it from what we see later in the Bible. And when Jesus speaks about the devil, he calls him the father of all lies. He calls him a liar. Uh, and we see here in Genesis that right from the beginning, Satan was a liar. In fact, if you look closely... The serpent tells three lies here, just in these first five verses. I should say I've had these three lies pointed out to me by others. Uh, William Taylor was uh, one who I was looking at this week who points out these three lies. Uh, He's one, an English preacher, who I found really helpful at uh, lots of points through Genesis, actually. Uh, The serpent, he tells these three lies, and it's worth noticing these three lies, I think, because actually these three lies that the serpent tells, they give us a really good picture of what sin is at its very core what sin is. I wonder if you can spot the three lies. I'll show them to you. The first one is right here in verse 1. The serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Where's the lie in this? I mean, God didn't say they should eat from any tree. He said they could eat from all the trees, um, except for one. So there's maybe just this tiny little bit of truth that's then twisted and changed to be mostly lie here, kind of that twisted half-truth, which is often the most dangerous sort of lie. Uh, think about what this lie is at the core, what this lie is underneath. Uh, just Actually, just have a, pay attention just, just to one word for a minute, uh, that third word of what the snake says, really. Did God really say? I mean, why use that word? The NIV uh, does a good job of translating it, actually. It's a word that's normally used for something positive, but here the serpent seems to be using it in a negative way, uh, which means, you know, it's our dictionary definition of irony. So uh, what does that mean? I mean, think about how the serpent then would have said it. He would have said, did God, did God really say that? 
He really said that? I mean, I mean, you're kidding. That's, that's hilarious. He really said that? That you couldn't eat trees from your own garden? Wow, that's, that's pathetic. It's irony, right? It's a slur. And what's the lie behind it? God really said that? Well, he's just a spoil sport, isn't he? He's just trying to stop you having any fun. He doesn't know what's best for you. Live a little. It's not an unfamiliar lie to us, is it? Did God really say that we should keep sex for marriage? Gee, that doesn't seem like God knows how to have any fun. Does God really say to make church a priority and miss out on Sunday brunches every week? Surely not. He really said you can't eat from any tree in the garden. What's the lie? The lie is that God doesn't know what's best for us. The lie is that we'll have happier lives without him. The lie is that God is a spoil sport. All you have to do is look back at the first couple of chapters of Genesis to see how ridiculous this lie is. God created the world. He made it perfect. He made it beautiful. Adam and Eve got to live in this beautiful garden with perfect intimacy. God isn't a spoil sport. He's the God who carefully crafted a perfect place for us to live and knows what's best for us in a way that no one else could. He's the one who made us after all. Or something like that is what Eve should have said, right? But uh, let's have a look at what she does say. What she does say is okay, but she kind of sounds to me like she's already doubting. So the woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from uh, eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. And here's the second lie from the snake. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. What's the second lie? Again, there's a hint of truth. Adam and Eve don't drop dead as soon as they eat the fruit, but eventually because of this they do die. What's the lie really? You will not certainly die. What's the lie? The lie is, there aren't any consequences for sin. God's not a sort of God who needs to do anything about evil. Just live your life. Have fun. You don't need to worry about death and being right with God. You know, you probably won't die anyway. It's, it's a lie. God is a good God. We've seen this already in Genesis. He created an orderly world. He's not just going to let evil and chaos dominate his world and never do anything about it. It's not the sort of God that he is. There are consequences for evil. There are immediate consequences. Of course, sin brings pain into our lives and others' lives. You know, have an affair. Don't worry about that addiction. It won't hurt anyone. How many people in our city have had their lives ruined by those sorts of lies? But there are eternal consequences for sin too. God is a God who will not let evil and chaos rule. He's a God who does something about evil. You will not certainly die. It's a, it's a lie. Evil matters to God. So the first lie, God doesn't know what's best for us. He's a spoiled sport. The second lie, there's no consequences for sin. You'll get away with it. Uh, the third lie, it takes us even more right to the core of what sin is. 
Uh, We see it in verse 5. So verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I say, what a lie this is. You know know why people believe crazy conspiracy theories? Uh, It's because of this lie. There's a secret. They're keeping something from you. There's something behind the curtain. It's compelling, isn't it? What if there is a secret? What if we could eat this fruit and become just like God? No wonder he wants us to stay away from it. He's holding us back. You know, maybe if we ate this fruit, we wouldn't even need God. Who's going to tell us what's right or wrong then? We can decide for ourselves. Let's do it. Let's break free from God. We can take his place. What a, what a lie this is. It's a compelling lie, but it's so wrong. The fruit was never going to make humans like God. Uh, yes, there's a hint of truth again. It does seem to give Adam and Eve some sort of ability to start uh, seeing right and wrong and deciding what they think is right and wrong for themselves. But all it leads to is them doing all sorts of wrong things. It doesn't make Adam and Eve like God. It doesn't give them his power. Yeah, he's got the power to give evil and uh, take evil and chaos and bring about order. That's, that's what we saw Genesis 1 is all about. The only power this fruit gives is uh, the power to create more chaos. And yet this is still a lie that plenty of us fall for. Yeah, I could put myself in God's position. I might decide for myself what's right or wrong. You know, I actually, I might be a bit fairer than what God is, actually. You know, that sin isn't so bad. Or, um, you know, I think society's ready to move on from God. I think we're ready to run things ourselves. Time to leave those fairy stories behind. It's a lie. It's a lie. God is still the only one who can put this world right. Now, if you ever wanted to know what sin is at its core, not just about doing the wrong thing, uh, that's part of it, but that's more of a product of sinfulness rather than sinfulness itself. What is, what is sin? It's believing and acting on these lies. One of them, all of them. God doesn't want what's best for me. God doesn't care if I do the wrong thing. I can decide right or wrong for myself. I have a theory. I'd be interested to know if you agree with this. Uh, I reckon pretty much every time we sin, we believe one or all of these three lies. Maybe not when we sin without even thinking about it, but uh, when we stop and we know something is wrong and then we decide to still do that thing or not do that thing, I think deep down we've believed one of these lies. God doesn't know what's best. This is what I need right now. It's only fair that I do this, treat this person like this. It doesn't matter anyway, I'll just do it. There won't be any consequences. Yeah, I don't even think it's so wrong anyway. He's a spoiled sport, he doesn't care. He needs to get out of the way and let me live my own life. Believing these lies, acting on these lies, I think that is what sin is all about. Uh, Here's something uh, that you might like to try sometimes. I do this sometimes. Uh, Next time you catch yourself in something that you shouldn't have done or failing to do something that you should do, uh, maybe try asking yourself this question. What what lie did I believe? At the core of it, what lie did I fall for? You know, the tragedy is, as we um, look at what we've seen in Genesis so far, it's, uh, it's very clear, this is God's world. He knows how to bring about good. 
He knows how to give us joy and rest and how to perfectly enjoy his good creation. He only ever wanted good for us, a good and perfect world. And yet when we say that he doesn't want what's best for us, when we say that we can go against him and there won't be any consequences, when we say that we can put ourselves in his place, well, we're rejecting everything good that he's made. We're rejecting order and choosing to go back to a world in chaos, being fooled by sin's lies. Let's go to our second point then. We're going to accelerate and move a bit faster from here. Sin's shame. As we know, Adam and Eve end up eating the fruit. Uh, We'll take a look, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam was there too, hey? Could have said something earlier, couldn't he? Her husband was with, was with her and he ate it. Uh, look, at, look at how quickly things change. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Uh, I try and picture what might have been going through Adam and Eve's heads, heads at this point. I wonder if for a minute they thought they might have gotten away with it. You know, they, they cover up their nakedness. Oh, maybe we're okay. But we can tell that things are pretty obviously different, aren't they? Suddenly Adam and Eve are feeling things like shame. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now that first bit of that verse is, is so tragic, I reckon. It's like his last picture of the beautiful, how beautiful things have been up until now. God who would come and walk in the garden in the cool of the evening. He'd come and visit Adam and Eve and spend time with them and enjoy the garden together. What an intimacy with God they enjoyed. And yet they heard God and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Uh, They hide from God. When God finds them, they play the blame game. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. Straight away they know they've done the wrong thing. They're filled with shame. Um, it makes me think of, I've got this weirdly strong memory from when I was about nine or ten. I can't even remember any of the details. I, I know I'd been allowed to play with some special toy. Uh, I don't even know what it was. don't think it belonged to me. I was allowed to play with it on the condition that I didn't take it outside. And not only did I take it outside, I took it outside and then forgot about it and left it outside. And I, I remember because I hadn't even done it deliberately. It was just being stupid and thoughtless and getting distracted. Uh, I'm a bit vague on the details, I can't remember everything, but what I can remember clearly is when my parents came to me and asked where the toy was, I remember instantly realising that it was outside and that I'd forgotten about it. Remember, I think it probably sticks so clearly with me because I know that I kind of didn't mean to do it, although I definitely was in the wrong. Um, I remember instantly realising, oh no, it's outside. I'm totally guilty here. Like Adam and Eve, I remember trying to scramble and I think I maybe lied and said oh I reckon it is inside let's go look for it maybe maybe made some excuses what excuse can I give Uh, but all I was feeling was shame at a deep level I'd done the wrong thing and I couldn't take it back sin does make us feel shameful sometimes doesn't it I was talking to someone only a few days ago um, talking about how often they come to church and they just they, they often just feel shame because they know they're coming before God and they know that in some way during the week they've gone against him I kind of say, in some ways, shame, shame is not the worst thing you can feel. 
uh, feeling shame is a sign that we've stopped being fooled by sin's lies and realised the truth that we've done the wrong thing. At least when you feel shame, it's a sign that you've noticed that you've been fooled, right? Uh, one thing I said to this person I was talking to that uh, in some ways it would be more worrying if you never felt shame because maybe that would be an indicator that sin's lies have got us totally convinced, hook, line and sinker. Sin's lies, sin's shame, thirdly, sin's effect. Now, if you've got Genesis open in front of you, you'll notice uh, in the, kind of the first half of Genesis 3, there's this story with the fruit and Adam and Eve eating the fruit. Uh, and in the second half of the chapter, you'll see there's all these little offset bits, almost like little poems. Uh, the whole section, verses 14 through to 19, to be exact, we call these the curses. God has seen what Adam and Eve have done, and now we see what he's going to do about it. Remember, he's not a God who can see evil and, no, and not do anything. God's seen what Adam and Eve have done, and now we're going to see what he's going to do about it. There's a curse for the snake, verses 14 and 15. The snake now has to crawl on its belly. Uh, maybe snakes would have had little legs and walked around if it wasn't for this today. Uh, there's, there's enmity between the snake and the descendants of Eve. Constant battle between the snake and humans. Most people don't like snakes, do they? I mean, haven't noticed that? I wonder, though, if the point is more about constant battle between humans and actually Satan, who keeps trying to deceive us with sin's lies. There's also curses for Eve. Childbirth is painful now. It's true. Enough said. There's curses for Adam. Uh, work now, it's not the perfect picture of Genesis 2. There's thorns and thistles, there's sweat, there's no happy ending. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. And we could delve into all the detail of these curses, and that would be a good thing to do, but we don't uh, have time to do that too much today. Because uh, actually, anyway, I think the point really of the curses is not so much the detail, but the big picture. Uh, they're pretty comprehensive. The world is broken in all sorts of ways. It was meant to be a world of order, but now it's full of chaos. It's full of struggle. It's full of pain. Work is a struggle and unsatisfying. And all of us are only here for a time before death takes us and back to dust we go. That is an accurate picture of our symptoms, isn't it? Now, I've only been a pastor for a year and a half. I uh, love it. I uh, love my job. But uh, one thing is, I know there's other jobs like this too, but being a pastor, you certainly see a little bit more of the brokenness. I I think you pretty, realize, pretty quickly realise as you talk to people and you hear what's going on, that things are even more broken under the surface than what we see on top. This is our doctor's diagnosis. This is the bad news. We're getting it straight. doesn't pull any punches. But at least we can make sense of what we see around us. Yes, the world is broken. The world is under a curse and it's our fault. We're all fooled by sin's lies. When we realise we've been fooled, we all feel sin's shame and we all live with sin's effects. It's hard to hear, isn't it? But there is also that sense of relief in knowing that at least what we experience, we know that it's not actually how it's meant to be. We haven't been imagining it. Something is wrong. Now, we've got a couple more things to quickly think about. We've got big questions and hints of hope. Uh, so there are a few really big questions that come out of what we've just looked at. Some of you might be asking these questions already as you're listening along. Some of us won't be. Um, they're way too big to answer properly 
uh, in the time that we have, but there are a few things we can say. Let me, I think, show you some of the big questions uh, that come out of what we've been looking at today. First one, what does Adam and Eve's sin have to do with me? Anyone wondering that? Fair question, really. I mean, why does the sin of these two people who lived thousands of years ago or whatever, uh, why does the sin of these two people that we don't really know have anything to do with us here in Adelaide in 2021? Uh, Some of you might know, actually, uh, that this is a big question for theologians, a big kind of debated question that uh, smart people, nerds like to um, talk about and write books about. What's clear, I think, is that Genesis is the story of how things began. Genesis is about what happened. Uh, But it's also the story about what always happens. You know, the story that we've read in Genesis 3, it's all of our stories. Adam and Eve believed sin's lies. They believed that God didn't know best. They believed that there wouldn't be consequences for their actions. They believed that they could put themselves in God's place. And we all do the same. This is our story too. Uh, the questions that the question really that the theologians love to talk about is why? Why do we all why do we all seem to act like Adam and Eve? Why do we all follow them? Is there is there something in our genetics, in our DNA that actually changed back in the Garden of Eden? Or do we all just follow Adam and Eve's bad example? For me, I don't think theologians pay enough attention to the curses. God told us to expect constant battle between ourselves and Satan. I think that is what we experience. We all battle against sin's temptations and sin's lies. We live in a world that's broken because of the curses and it's hard to live in a broken world. Uh, It's hard when you live in a broken world not to add to the brokenness. In fact, I think there's only one guy who ever came into the broken world and didn't propagate the brokenness, didn't spread the brokenness further around. One guy who instead of bringing brokenness brought blessing and order and that's of course Jesus, God himself made man whatever the answer to the exact dynamics of that question we do all seem to live as our father and our our father adam and our mother eve did we all make their mistakes here's a second big question for you Uh, why let evil evil happen in the first place um you know why let the snake into the garden in the first place hey uh I mean, that would have made things a lot easier if the snake just had never existed. Anyone wonder that as we read through the passage? That's a, that's a pretty good question, right? I'm definitely wondering that. Uh, when I was studying at Bible college a few years ago, they can be a bit cruel sometimes. They uh, made us write a 3,000-word paper on why God allowed evil to come into the world. And really, it was one of the stupidest things I've ever done. I researched and I read for days, and I never felt like I got any closer to coming up with a good answer. Somehow, I managed to take, I don't know, and pad that out to 3,000 words. Um, and I ended up getting a HD, so I, I, maybe, maybe I don't know is the right answer. Um, look, there are some things we can say about this. We can say that God is good, we know that. We know God is sovereign, he's in control. He works all things for his glory and for our good. I suspect something like, God, like, like the answer is maybe that God could have created everything as robots with no free will, but at some level that wouldn't have actually been a good thing. Uh, And maybe what he has done will ultimately lead to an even greater kind of good and more glory to Jesus in the end. We don't have God's perspective, of course. So we don't know, maybe things will make a bit more sense uh, when we can ask Jesus in the new creation. One more big question for us this morning. There's probably even more we could come up with, but 
Uh, what, about, what about this? I, I've had a few people ask me this before, so I thought I'd just talk about it for a minute. Why, why does brokenness affect some more than others? What I mean by this is we've got our diagnosis today that the world is broken, so we say, okay, that makes sense of the world we see, but some of us have lives of relative comfort. I can speak for myself. There are lots of really lovely things about my life, uh, but we know that this isn't the case for lots of the world. Some of us have more pain than others. There's a couple of billion people um, who live below the poverty line, for example. You know, do these curses from Genesis 3, do they affect some parts of the world worse than other parts of the world? What, what is going on? Um, I have four very quick thoughts. Uh, the first one is that God doesn't treat everybody the same. He's never done that. that that's obvious, isn't it? That there's, you know, there's probably about 100 people in the room and there's 100 different stories. Uh, we know God doesn't treat us all exactly the same. We don't know what God's doing in each one of our lives, but we do know that he does things for a reason and he's trying to bring about good. Doesn't mean all our lives are exactly the same. Second quick thought is to say that uh, those of us, you know, I'm including myself here, who do feel like that we live a comfortable life. It is worth remembering that we are actually the rare exception. You know, most people, particularly when you include history, most people throughout history, whether it's, you know, ancient Germanic tribes roaming Europe, thousands of years ago, or South Pacific Islanders, or African tribal people, most people throughout history have experienced much tougher lives with much shorter lifespans than your typical modern Westerner. So we are the exception. A third thing to say, of course, is is lots of people in the West, like lots of people in this room, still live really hard lives, might have different issues and different things going on, but we still feel the world's brokenness, even if some of us feel it in different ways or to different extremes. And fourth thing to say is that ultimately, uh, this is a really easy th- thing to say when, uh, when you're saying it as someone who lives a relatively comfortable life, but um, it is true, isn't it, that it's not our present circumstances that are the most wonderful thing God can do for someone. Uh, the most wonderful thing God can do for someone is saving them through Jesus. The most merciful, loving thing God can do for someone is save them. And I was, I was thinking about Africa a bit this week, for example, Lots of poverty, lots of hard things in Africa. But also at the moment, millions and millions of people are coming to know Jesus uh, across the continent of Africa. So I wonder if we are wondering why God isn't kinder to Africa, for example. Well, maybe we should actually think, well, actually, what he is giving them is he's giving them the most important thing, and that's bringing people to Christ. I know it's easy to say when you're sitting here in Australia living a comfortable life. That's all I have to say about that one too. There's three big questions. I might have just confused you even more than when you began, Uh, but that's okay. Interesting things to think about. I'd love to know your thoughts if um, you've thought about these things or, uh, yeah, or you've got other questions too. Uh, Let's go to our last point, hints of hope. One more thing to finish with. Uh, We have heard bad news today, haven't we? We've had our diagnosis that actually this is not normal, this is not how things should be. Uh, We're not healthy, the world isn't healthy, it's broken because of sin. And yeah, there is a little bit of relief in knowing that at least we have a reason for why things are the way that they are and we can deal with the world as it really is. Uh, But I know some of us, uh, we might be feeling the brokenness of the world acutely at the moment. Maybe it is a relief to get the reason for why things are the way that they are, but you'd also love to have hope that things will get better. Well, Genesis 3, it is about the bad news, can I say. It isn't a passage which gives us lots of hope. I'd be wrong if we had a really positive sermon coming out of Genesis 3. Uh, But there are a couple of hints. 
There are a couple of hints. And there are only hints, but there are hints that things will be turned around. One hint, you might have noticed this, actually is God's attitude in the passage. Yeah, we see God's justice in Genesis 3, but we also see his compassion. Adam and Eve sin, and he doesn't destroy them straight away. He comes to them. He seeks them. And then after he curses the world, he doesn't just kill Adam and Eve off. He sends them out of the garden. But even then, he makes clothes for them. And he still tries to help them. You already get the sense that God is not just going to abandon his world. The other hints of hope we find in verse 15. Let me get it on the screen. Now, this is part of the curse to the snake. It says, uh, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We already said a little bit about the enmity, the constant warring between humanity and Satan. Uh, the second part of this verse, though, is uh, it is odd. It's an odd part of the verse. Now, the first part of the verse, uh, you have the woman's offspring and the snake's offspring, and you kind of get the picture of their descendants just fighting each other. But then in the second verse, part of the verse, it suddenly talks about he. It talks about this singular one man, he. And, and actually, who's he going to crush? He's not actually going to crush the snake's descendants. It actually says he will crush your head. He's going to crush the snake of the original crush the head of the original snake uh, somehow. It, it's, it's very subtle and it's, it's a bit strange. It's very subtle. It's not something I don't think that the original readers of Genesis would have picked up. Um, but I do think as people who know the story of Jesus, when we then go back to read Genesis again, we are meant to actually see hope in this verse. We're meant to see a promise that one will come who will crush Satan once and for all. And that constant warring, Satan tempting us with sin's lies. And then when we do sin, Satan, can, uh, Satan is called the accuser. He can rightly accuse us and call us guilty of what we've done and demand punishment. Well, when Jesus came to earth, he was tempted by Satan's and sin's lies and he stood firm. And when he died, he took the punishment we deserved. He took away Satan's accusation. For in Jesus, Satan cannot say that you are guilty and you deserve punishment. Because in Jesus, we are forgiven and our punishment has been served. Satan's got nothing left to say. Genesis 3 is the bad news. It only gives us tiny, tiny hints of hope. But as we see the rest of the Bible story unfold, we do see that Jesus is the serpent crusher. He did resist sin's lies. He removes sin's shame. And when he comes again to bring about the new heavens and the new earth, he will deal with the curse and with sin's effects. Let's finish there. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it's hard, uh, when it's given us bad news. We thank you that your word is still true. That deals with the world as it actually is. Help us all as we go about our lives, knowing that we live in a world of brokenness and experience lots of pain. Father, we've seen today what sin is. We've seen sin's lies. We confess that we've too often believed sin's lies and acted accordingly. This morning we ask your forgiveness. And Father, we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you that he resisted sin's lies. He deals with sin's shame. And he will one day 
remove fully (coughs) sin's effects. Help us to live for him. And we pray today in his name. Amen.